Good afternoon, and welcome to our breakout session uh, in the shadow of NAFTA, Dairy, Lumber, and Bombardier. Uh, thanks for sticking around. My name is Colin Grabo. I'm a trade policy analyst here at the Cato Institute, and I will be today's moderator. Uh, let's begin with a bit of background on today's topics, which seem to have little in common other than the fact that they all involve our neighbor to the north, Canada. First up is the topic of dairy in Canada's supply management system, which, contrary to the title of today's session, is no longer a NAFTA shadow. Indeed, it is one of the few areas where I think a consensus of observers would agree that in the demands of U.S. negotiators present a step towards freer trade. While I'm not sure I fully grasp Canada's approach to dairy, it appears to be premised on the notion that a system of quotas and tariffs is necessary to avoid oversupply and ensure stable pricing and production. I've always subscribed to the radical notion that decisions made by buyers and sellers facilitated by free markets are the best way to determine the proper price of goods and how much should be produced. But Canada's agriculture minister earlier this month declared their system to be a, quote, model for the world. I look forward to learning more. We next have the issue of lumber, which I understand has been a source of trade friction between the U.S. and Canada dating back to the 1800s, if not earlier. The U.S. logging industry, following the expiration of a softwood lumber agreement between the U.S. and Canada, it expired in October 15, uh, 2015, insists that it is at an unfair disadvantage as Canadian forest practices and allegedly insufficiently low fees for loggers to cut down trees amount to a de facto government subsidy. In response to such concerns, the Commerce Department launched an investigation in December of last year that culminated with an April decision slapping duties ranging from 3.02% to 24.12% on five Canadian companies and 19.88% on all other producers and exporters in Canada. June saw additional duties put in place. The countervailing duty uh, requirement, however, was suspended in August until the U.S. International Trade Commission comes to a final decision, which is expected on November 14th, I believe. Uh, by my count, this is the fifth time the U.S. has conducted an investigation to alleged lumber dumping by Canada in recent decades, with previous episodes in 1982, 1986, 1991, 2001, and of course this past December. By way of context and to emphasize the importance of this issue to Canada, lumber makes up more than 2% of Canada's total exports to the United States. Each year involves thousands of Canadian jobs. Lastly, we come to the issue of Bombardier, or perhaps I should say Bombardier, Boeing, and now Airbus. Boeing, of course, has complained to the Commerce Department that is threatened with material injury because of sales of Bombardier's C-Series aircraft to Delta Airlines, never mind the fact that Boeing does not sell a direct competitor to this 109-seat plane. In response, the Commerce Department has decided to impose a 79.82% a anti-dumping duty and a 219.63% countervailing duty for a grand total of 299.45% on Bombardier. Further complicating matters is the announcement by Bombardier that Airbus will take a majority stake in the C-Series program, gratis, with the airplanes to be assembled in Alabama. To walk us through these issues and help us make sense of them, I'm joined by our three panelists, Ed Farrell, an international trade lawyer with a particular expertise in agricultural uh, issues, uh, Chris Sands, Senior Research Professor and Director of the Center for Canadian Studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and Dan Eikenson, who is, of course, Director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Those of you desiring more information about their bios can consult the uh, relevant handout. Uh, 
The format for today's discussion will be as follows. I will give each speaker 15 minutes to discuss their topic, and I will be keeping time, followed by a chance for the panelists to react to one another's comments and ask questions. I will then have the option of asking some questions of my own, and will conclude by opening up the discussion to the audience. Uh, so we are going to go in order, as the title indicates, with dairy, which will be covered by Ed, uh, lumber covered by Chris, and Dan will take Bombardier. So Ed, take it away. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Colin. Um, very pleased to be here. Uh, thank you to Cato. Dan, good to see you again. Um, as, as just indicated, um, dairy is no longer in the shadow. Um, at the last round, um, the U.S. actually tabled uh, two, two separate pro proposals um, with respect to, to Canada dairy. Um, the first proposal seeks to reverse uh, a recent change to Canada's supply management uh, system, they, uh, the creation of a so-called Class 7, which is um, um, a class of milk that's um, priced at the lowest world price for um, ingredients um, going into uh, uh, products such as uh, non-fat dry milk, whole milk powder, milk protein concentrates. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in just a moment. Uh, the second uh, proposal calls for um, increased market access. Um, and uh, my understanding is that uh, as tabled, it would um, call for completely open access uh, into the Canadian market uh, within 10 years. Uh, both proposals were uh, strongly denounced by both the Canadian government um, and particularly the Canadian industry. So the, um, so the battle lines have been drawn. Um, what I hope to do today is to uh, shed some light uh, on these issues uh, by uh, providing historical context, um, a brief recounting of recent developments uh, in the Canadian dairy industry um, that have led to, in particular, the Class 7, and uh, provide some um, um, analysis of um, options if, uh, indeed, the uh, dairy issue does go back into the shadows uh, and is not solved in the NAFTA context. The, um, the present structure um, of the Canadian uh, supply-managed uh, dairy industry goes back to the early 70s. And basically, the system operates um, on um, production quotas, uh, classified milk pricing, and um, significant um, import barriers uh, to protect the supply management system. Uh, the quotas are set on a yearly basis. Um, uh, by the Canadian Dairy Commission, um, and uh, the quotas are then allocated by the Commission to the various provinces, which then operate to um, uh, um, 
administer the quotas through a system of classified pricing. And the classified pricing is n really not unlike what happens in the U.S. That is, the price of milk varies depending on its end use, whether it's for fluid milk, which is the highest price, or soft products like um, ice cream and yogurt, or for cheese, or for butter. Uh, the difference between the U.S. and Canada's systems is that the U.S. does not layer production quotas over the classified pricing system. Um, Canada uh, justified um, its use of production quotas um, under uh, GATT Article 11, which basically allows for the, um, the establishment of these quotas if it's uh, to, and I will quote, necessary to the enforcement of governmental measures which operate to restrict the quantities of like domestic product. In other words, you can establish the quotas if you are restricting your domestic um, production so that you have a closed system. When NAFTA was signed, it created a problem for the Canada uh, dairy industry. Uh, although dairy was not um, included in NAFTA, um, uh, a number of other products were which contained dairy products. For example, pizza. So the problem was if you wanted to retain pizza manufacture in Canada, you had to get a source of supply for cheese that was priced at a level equivalent to what the U.S. manufacturer of pizza was paying. Otherwise, you would lose the pizza trade, uh, 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 excuse me, to imports from the U.S. <clears throat> so the classified milk pricing system was used to accommodate that uh, end goal by creating a special class of milk that would go into the manufacture of ingredients used in products that were competing with imports. The special uh, class program has also been used uh, to compete with um, imports in a more targeted way. <coughs> um, the, um, uh, a specific example here is uh, non-standardized cheese uses uh, casein, rennet casein, uh, which is a milk protein, as a primary ingredient. There was no production of casein in Canada, so the processed cheese manufacturers were importing casein. A special milk class was developed uh, for the specific purpose of encouraging casein production. It worked. Um, there are no longer imports of casein, rather, um, uh, it's being, um, the, the processed cheese market, it, it's, it's being supplied um, by domestically produced casein. In um, 1997, the U.S. and New Zealand um, bought a WTO dispute settlement case um, against Canada's uh, special milk classes, specifically an export class of milk. <coughs> um, and after four or five years of litigation, 
that case was settled uh, basically with an agreement that Canada would abide by uh, its WTO export commitment levels. Um, and things uh, from that point forward worked quite well um, up until recent years. Milk production um, in Canada um, was between approximately 75 million hectoliters and 77 million hectoliters between 2000 and 2010. Very narrow band. Um, and if you think back to the GATT exception under which these production quotas were allowed, it seems to be working. In other words, um, it was matching up. Uh, production was not increasing. But that changed. Um, and there was a, a upward trend um, starting uh, in, in 2010. Uh, and in 2016, we moved from approximately 75 million hectoliters to 85 million hectoliters, which was the highest in Canadian history. Now, this wouldn't be problematic um, if there was a market for the additional milk uh, in Canada. Um, but there wasn't, sort of. The, the trend in milk production upward was the result of the quotas being set on butter consumption. Uh, and butter consumption in the last five years has increased worldwide, including in Canada. So that, that upward trend in butter production led to increased milk quotas. But there's a co-product of butter, and that's non-fat dry milk. And there was not an equivalent uptick in demand for non-fat dry milk. So this created a structural surplus of non-fat dry milk, and this is what led to class seven. The, um, so, so class seven um, milk is priced to processors at the lowest price comparing Europe, the US, and Oceania. So basically, the lowest world price, less um, a production cost uh, estimate. So the impact has been twofold. Uh, first, the substitution of dairy uh, ingredients produced in Canada for imported dairy ingredients. And this was evidenced by um, the cutoff um, of the sale of, uh, of UF milk uh, produced in the U.S. The second um, uh, consequence was uh, an increase in the export of skim milk powder. And this has been really dramatic. Um, between 2009 and 2014, um, uh, exports of uh, skim milk powder were between 10,000 tons and 12,000 tons, jumped to oh, about 13 and a half thousand tons in 2015, 
And then just fast forward, in the first eight months of this year, uh, they jumped to 50,000 tons. So to put this into perspective, in the first eight months of this year, Canada has exported half of the total skim milk powder it exported over the previous seven years. Um, if um, the pattern follows, we'll be looking at 80,000 tons of skim milk powder exports um, uh, by year end. Um, moving this amount onto a pretty thin market um, has uh, created, uh, you know, downward pressure uh, on on prices, which is felt not only in the um, in the U.S. but uh, by other global exporters. Um, as I mentioned before, um, the U.S. and New Zealand um, bought a, a WTO case um, against Canada's uh, special milk classes. Um, uh, back in the 90s. Um, that case, I think, serves as a precedent um, to be looked at if the, um, if the issue is not resolved in NAFTA. Um, I won't go into the details of that, um, but the analogies are, I, I think, quite strong. Um, Again, I think uh, there are also national treatment arguments uh, with respect to the, uh, uh, to the special class program. Um, there's um, import substitution problems, which uh, we see actually pretty clearly with the UF milk from the US uh, being displaced by this new class seven uh, ingredients um, and several other um, uh, WTO issues. Now, obviously, Canada has something to say about this, um, and, and, and they have responded. And there are several responses. First, they argue that the, the ingredient strategy is industry-driven, not government-driven. Um, it's run by producers, for producers, and therefore, uh, uh, should be immune from uh, from attack. Well, I think that issue actually was resolved by the earlier case. Um, Canada also um, uh, looks to the uh, the uh, uh, trade balance between the U.S. and Canada, where it notes that the U.S has a $400 million dairy surplus with Canada. So it's, it's not Canada that, that's the challenge here. I suppose the response to that is, yeah, well, that's true, but, but. And the but is that uh, the majority of the U.S. Uh, uh, exports to Canada are a part of a import for re-export program. So they only go into Canada if they're processed and go back out. So it's a little bit of playing with figures. Um, but again, that's not really relevant because um, it's Canada's policies we're looking at, not the balance of trade. Um, 
the other um, response is that uh, this is really a global oversupply issue. Um, and it is true uh, that dairy has been in surplus globally for the last couple of years. Um, but again, so what? Um, we're not really looking at that as being relevant to the steps taken by Canada. And in fact, if you look at, um, at the impact, you're adding 80 to 100,000 tons of product to an already stressed market that is a commodity market. So you're going to have um, a strong price impact. I think I will stop there as I seem to be out of time and, and would be happy to, to take questions. Great. Thank you very much, including for that reminder that bilateral trade statistics can obscure as much as they uh, shed light. <laughs> uh, next up is Chris Sands. Well, thank, thank you very much, and I want to thank Cato for having me uh, back to, uh, to speak on, on trade. And I, I want to add also, I noticed in the program with the exception of Ricardo Ramirez, who I think did a good job of talking about the politics in, in Mexico, uh, and with all due respect to John Weeks, who I think raised some of those issues in his presentation, but in a very Canadian polite way, um, I thought I would also just jump off topic a bit and talk about the Canadian politics that are surrounding all of these disputes, uh, but in an American way, that is to say, more directly, if not politely. Um, and. For those of you who've had some background with the Canadians, it's important to remember that NAFTA was a real watershed, not just for the United States and Mexico, but also for Canada, partly because the current Prime Minister's father, Pierre Trudeau, was the, the last and perhaps the greatest uh, of a series of economic nationalist Prime Ministers that Canada had, who saw the need to intervene on behalf of Canadian businesses and Canadian producers because of the awesome competitive uh, presence of the United States on their doorstep. They worried about Americanization of firms, the, the uh, what do you call subsidiary economy, comprador economy of Canadians with doomed to a future of managing plants for American masters. And they said, we can equalize this by government intervention. And that was the prevailing thinking that the Mulroney government in Canada was taking a chance with free trade to address, in the hopes that he could not only reverse that trend, but open Canada up, liberalize the Canadian economy, and change Canada. Basically lock in a set of reforms so that Canada would move in a different direction. And many Canadians at that time, and some of you remember the debates, were not entirely convinced this was going to be a good idea. They worried about the loss of Canadian sovereignty or Canadian identity, and it was a heated debate. Our debate about NAFTA in the United States a little bit later had some of the same flavor to give you a sense of the intensity. And so earlier today, we talked about, uh, several of the panelists talked about NAFTA as having been Mexico's chance to lock in some of its reforms. It was certainly the Reagan administration and then the George H.W. Bush administration's chance to lock in some of the things they were trying to do with the U.S. economy, but it was just the same for Canada. And if you have a chance to uh, you know, get beyond the fabulous hair and interesting socks of the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, you'll find that he is not as uh, economically nationalist as his father was. He is a, a new generation, much more comfortable with American trade, and he sees the benefit of NAFTA and so forth. 
but I wouldn't put him in the category of, say, a Cato regular. He, he would not be that kind. He still believes that the government plays an equalizing role, and he still wants to intervene in the economy. And what's fascinating to compare NAFTA 2.0 and NAFTA 1.0 is the very different dynamic. In NAFTA 1.0, you have three leaders trying to take a chance at reform that will liberalize and open up markets, not completely, but at least move in the right direction. In NAFTA 2.0, you have the United States, in many of its proposals, trying to reverse away from uh, liberalization to adopt an economic nationalist stance of our own. Uh, and there's a famous picture that the prime minister brought down to give to Donald Trump on their first meeting, which showed Donald Trump in the audience wildly applauding Pierre Trudeau at a meeting in New York. Um, I think in some ways, Trudeau and Trump would have understood each other well. They're both economic nationalists. And if that was the program, that'd be one thing, but they're asking the Canadians not to adopt economic nationalist policies, but to liberalize even further as the United States walks away from liberalization. So the irony of this position is not lost on Canadians. They know they're being asked to give up protections while the US enhances its. And that has made this whole debate um, quite different. Now, I will add, for those of you who maybe know Canadians, um, their risk appetite is much lower than ours. The Americans would take risks. We have a great time pushing boundaries, inventing Google, doing all this stuff. Canadians like a little less risk if they have the choice. And so they've gone into these negotiations hoping to just have, as Donald Trump said, a tweak to Canada's free trade like, and to NAFTA. Can we just have minor changes? modest changes, keep everything going well. And you can understand it, they're doing very well under the current trade agreement. Um, so that context is really important to understand why the Canadians are so frustrated with all of these disputes that we're talking about, because they feel put on the defensive, they feel put upon, and they would be just as happy if the whole thing went away. Not only that, Justin Trudeau followed Stephen Harper. And Stephen Harper did not have fabulous hair, but he was a much more committed free trader. And Harper bequeathed his successor two important trade deals, more than two, but two very big ones. One is the Canada-EU Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, the uh, CETA, which is now in provisional application. It is uh, an agreement that gives Canada enhanced access to European markets and has liberalized even provincial procurement uh, to a certain extent in Canada. It's, it's been a catalyst for something else that was important. The Canadian government signed, believe it or not, a Canadian free trade agreement. Yes, the provinces and the federal government agreed to start working to remove internal trade barriers, something that for most Americans would be shocking, but Canada has a number of barriers to free movement of goods, investment, and labor, and they're going to try to start unwinding them now as part of a commitment that followed the CETA, a recognition the CETA was gonna push them in this direction anyway. Not only that, but Canada has become a member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Dialogue and has joined other TPP members in trying to preserve the TPP minus one, as we like to say in the US, the TPP 11, as they say outside the US, which will give them access to Asian markets, in particular Japan. So at this very moment that the US, their number one market is giving them mixed signals, they do feel that they have some options in Europe and Asia, that they're well positioned to perhaps not only capitalize on market diversification, a program that Justin Trudeau himself uh, inherits from his father, who attempted something that some of you remember called the third option, to diversify trade away from their dependence on the US, but also, 
potentially offering American firms, many of which have Canadian subsidiaries, an alternate route to get products that have some U.S. content but also Canadian content into world markets. So even if the U.S. adopts a fortress U.S. strategy, even if the U.S. backs away from liberalization, Canada could be a conduit uh, for um, for U.S. exports or U.S. contented exports to get to these markets. So Canada's not in a bad position in that regard. However, it's very defensive on these three issues. And I've been asked to talk about lumber. I, I will probably in the Q&A talk a little bit about dairy and, and Boeing too, but uh, uh, I, I can't resist. But on lumber, I, I, the first thing and maybe the last thing I should say about softwood lumber is that if you are a Cato regular, reading... Dan Eikenson, reading Dan Griswold over the years, talking about this dispute, and I, I don't want to age you guys, but, but it's been around for a long time. I know you haven't been here since the 1800s, but um, you have followed many of the twists and turns, and I think uh, never there's no one else who's done as good a job at, at really looking at the intricacies of this dispute. Um, I, I'll offer a very broad uh, history, and for the detail, I encourage you to talk, uh, ask Dan the questions, but the, challenge that in some ways David Ricardo would have seen in, in softwood lumber disputes between Canada and the U.S. is that Canada has a very large factor endowment of forest and not a lot of people to crowd that forest out. And governments, provincial governments in Canada have often decided what's the environmentally responsible harvest and then allot, allotted large amounts of land, which is owned by the crown, which in this case is the province, uh, to be available to those who wish to lumber it or to harvest it. And because of that, uh, it's not an economic auction. There's not necessarily the same value put onto it. And the U.S. has objected because we don't have nearly as much free and open forested land because we have an auction system where private landowners and some sometimes the government will auction off access. We end up with a higher cost to get access to timber and as a result, our, our timber is more expensive. We also have an industry which has a lot of small players, many of whom adopted uh, they adopted expensive harvesting equipment uh, as their technology and ended up underwater on the loans when lumber prices fell. And so they've looked for protection to try to get themselves out of a jam, not unlike family farmers. Over the years, we've managed this dispute, and I should add that every province seems to have its own approach to the way that they allow access to land. We have convinced some of the Atlantic Canadian provinces to come around and adopt a more market-oriented system to alleviate some of this pressure, but we still have some serious issues with Canada. The most recent agreement to resolve the softwood lumber dispute was signed by the George W. Bush administration. And after much discussion, what they came up with was not a voluntary export restraint agreement, but a commitment by Canada to tax its own exports to raise their price to levels that were comparable to what was on offer in the United States. The reason they did that was because then they got to keep the money and invested in good forestry practice and other things, and the Americans didn't get to benefit from the fact that they were artificially raising prices. And of course, consumers get no benefit from this at all. This agreement was signed at a time when Canadian lumber companies uh, were feeling bullish because China was buying a lot of, uh, of lumber, uh, doesn't have as much of its own, and was buying a lot of Canadian lumber. And then two things happened. The Chinese economy began to slow down, and they were buying less Canadian lumber, and the mountain pine beetle, a nasty little bug, had started to infest forests in British Columbia and to some extent Alberta. 
which, so on the one hand, you saw demand fall because China wasn't buying as much because the economy was slowing down. And on the other hand, you saw supply fall because some of the beetle-infested timber wasn't saleable. And in that environment, they, they were less profitable, they stumbled along, and when the agreement came up for renewal, Canadian lumber companies decided that they could do better. That this was time to go back to the Americans and say, really now, there are a lot of American companies that have invested in Canadian lumber companies, it's a now much more integrated market, can't we agree on a more favorable deal? They thought they could do better. Many of us, I think Dan and others said, don't do this. It's right on principle. You're probably not going to like the result. They certainly did not anticipate Donald Trump. And now they're in a jam. I will say Canadians are ever hopeful. Uh, they are, they are a, a nice people. Um, and they genuinely believed, and, and you can go back and read the papers. It's, it's tragic, really. They genuinely believed that Barack Obama, who liked them so much and had a bromance with Justin Trudeau, after all, would cut them a break on softwood lumber in his final days in his administration, um, just because he liked them so much. And in the end, Barack Obama did not, arguing that he might just get TPP out of the Senate before uh, he left office after he lost, uh, ended his term, which goes to show that this sort of naive hopefulness uh, is actually not just a Canadian trait, but some Americans share it as well. He didn't get TPP either. Uh, and so the dispute remained unresolved. There is an argument, I think, that you hear from some Canadian lumber companies about incorporating this NAFTA dispute, not just in the shadow, or the softwood lumber dispute, not just in the shadow of NAFTA, but folding it into NAFTA 2.0. Why? Because the Canadians feel fundamentally that what they're doing isn't wrong, but that a price must be paid to create this uh, level playing field, and they'd be more than glad to sacrifice dairy. Uh, or something else so that they can pay the price and then Canadian lumber can come in and American consumers can have cheaper houses and Home Depot can uh, continue its role as one of Canada's largest trading partners, just, just the company. Um, that was part of the Trudeau government strategy of using this issue perhaps as a chip that would give them something that they could trade in the, uh, in the negotiations. Wilbur Ross, our Secretary of Commerce, took a different view, a more traditional view, which is that softwood lumber, because it affects almost every province, not all of them, is like energy. It's one of those issues that touches almost all Canadians, and it's better politically to resolve it before the negotiations start. That's why we had a softwood lumber agreement before we began negotiation of the Canada Free Trade Agreement. It's why we've never incorporated it in the, in the main body of the talks. But I have to say, I kind of agree, um, when I was a young Canadianist, we had two issues that were the bane of our existence and the worst question on every exam. Questions about fishery disputes and questions about lumber. Uh, we have made progress in the last 100 years. We don't have as many fisheries disputes, which is very exciting, but we still have lumber, and I would be so happy if we could resolve this in the context of NAFTA 2.0. I would have to come up with new exam questions for my students, but I think uh, we'd all be happier at the end. Thanks. Chris, thank you very much uh, for your comments about lumber and the broader discussion of the context for Canadian trade policy. Uh, now batting cleanup is Dan Eikenson. This is just a third, so this is not cleanup, but it's, thank you. Thanks for those kind comments. Great presentation and, uh, you know, I, I'm not an expert on lumber. Uh, I, I vent from time to time when I take exception to my government's behavior. Uh, so that's how I've gotten familiar with it. Uh, I'm glad you guys are here because the other uh, presentation, there's probably some crossover. They're talking about Chapter 19 and uh, dispute settlement. So I will uh, 
traips into a little discussion of chapter 19. It's related to the Boeing-Bombardier dispute uh, in a way that you'll see how I transition into. Um, a lot has been made about the Boeing-Bombardier dispute. I, I don't think we really should call it a dispute. I think that suggests that, this, that there have been violations of some obligations at the WTO or NAFTA. It's just run-of-the-mill trade remedies cases. Anti-dumping and a countervailing duty case. It's officially, you know, an anti-dumping investigation of 100 to 150-seat large civil aircraft from Canada and a countervailing duty investigation into the same product. Of course, anti-dumping actions are brought with a, 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 a domestic industry feels that it is uh, injured or threatened with material injury by reason of less than fair value imports. If it can demonstrate that, then they can, an order can be imposed and then get duties. Um, a countervailing duty, the countervailing duty law deals with subsidies. So if uh, uh, an industry can demonstrate that it's injured, materially injured, or threatened with material injury by reason of subsidized imports, then they can get a countervailing duty uh, action uh, in, imposed. It just so happens that in this case, the U.S. industry consists of one company, Boeing, and the, the respondent industry, the Canadian industry, is Bombardier. So we call it Boeing Bombardier. Um, the, uh, the, the measures, as, as Colin mentioned, were pretty high. Uh, countervailing duties of about 220 percent were calculated preliminarily. Dump, uh, Anti-dumping duties of about 80 percent preliminarily. So if that were to stick, uh, Pretty hard for U.S. companies to purchase any Bombardier C-series planes. It's, it's just cost prohibitive. Uh, as you've probably heard, there have been some uh, efforts to, to get around that. But the, uh, the, Commerce, uh, the Commerce Department still has to issue a final. I don't have a lot of faith that it's going to change its methodology all that much. Um, but the International Trade Commission might find that there's no threat of material injury. So it could all go away. But you know, you've heard of the uh, Airbus purchase of the taking a majority interest in the C series from Bombardier. That that goes on regardless. So the plans are already changing, and we'll see we'll see what happens uh, there. For, for example, if there's no order put in place, and Airbus is starting to build these uh, C series aircraft in Mobile, Alabama, from parts that come in from Canada and the United Kingdom. Is that part of the scope? Uh, the, the, the scope in this case is against aircraft assembled and I think partially assembled. I think that's the language. Um, my understanding is that importing parts is not going to, uh, it's different. These parts are not, doesn't constitute an unassembled aircraft. Um, but you can be sure that, that Boeing's um, lawyers will probably want to go after whatever supply chain is, is developing in response to these orders. But this is the point that I want to make about this case. A lot has been made of this case. A lot is, this is evidence of Trump's America First policy. Uh, this is uh, evidence of a protectionist agenda. Um, the Trump administration is trying to get negotiating leverage for the NAFTA. You know, I don't think that's really the case at all. I just think this is just a regular case. Uh, it just so happens that the Commerce Department has a lot of latitude, a lot of discretion in these cases. Sometimes the Commerce Secretary or the President will say, you know, put your foot on the gas, uh, you know, push, push the bounds of what's within the law to calculate high, high, high margins. They may have done that in this case, but I'll tell you that does not distinguish this case from other cases in, in any sense. But we're in this fevered pitch of anti-Trumpism, well-earned. <laughs> but. But my concern is that if we just say, oh, there's Trump, that's Trump, 
We're taking our eye off the ball. The problem here is the trade remedies laws. The, the anti-dumping law is very problematic. The countervailing duty law, I could say, has an economic justification. Right? If, when, when foreign governments are subsidizing, there should be recourse to uh, mitigating the effects of those subsidies. I'm not saying the CVD law works particularly well. There's a lot of human error. There's a lot of um, overshooting. Um, I'm sure the 220% estimates of subsidization were way in excess of any subsidies that were, were given. Uh, the anti-dumping law doesn't have any justification. It doesn't have a political rationale. It doesn't have an economic, I say, or an economic rationale. I say it doesn't have a political rationale because we have one other trade remedy law, the safeguard law. And the safeguard law says, I'm a, I'm a domestic industry. If I can demonstrate that I'm seriously injured by reasons of imports, uh, surging imports, or uh, I can get temporary duties put in place. The safeguard law doesn't accuse anybody of unfair trade. It is the political justification for snapping back and for you know, uh, making exceptions for tr the effects of trade liberalization. So the anti-dumping law, therefore, is superfluous. Its defenders say, look, uh, we need these laws to overcome um, the benefits uh, bestowed upon foreign companies by unfair foreign government practices. And those unfair foreign practices enable foreign companies to price discriminate in the United States, to sell for lower prices here than they do at home, uh, or to uh, sell below cost. Well, in a domestic context, selling below cost, there's nothing wrong with that. We do, companies do it all the time. It's a profit-maximizing strategy often. And price discrimination is a profit-maximizing strategy. So why is it problematic in this international context? Well, because there are some foreign interventions, maybe high tariffs, uh, maybe lax bankruptcy laws, rules that somehow bestow advantages. Okay, well, if that's the case, the anti-dumping law should require petitioners to, to allege, to say, you know, we're bringing this case, we have evidence of price discrimination or selling below cost, and it's been enabled by these high tariffs, these particular laws, these particular problems. But instead, anti-dumping cases come, come in, and all that has to happen is Oh, I see price discrimination, or I see sales below cost. Yeah, and the industry is suffering a little bit, you know, lower profits. But there's no need to tie it. They, they see the price discrimination, and they assume there must be these foreign government practices abroad that are bestowing these advantages. And I, I'm harping on this because in the NAFTA, in an integrated uh, region, an integrated economy, I mean, where, where are the unfair practices? There shouldn't be, we have zero tariffs, basically, between ourselves. Uh, there aren't policies that give these kinds of advantages. It shouldn't exist in the NAFTA. It shouldn't exist overall. Um, and if it's going to exist, something on the agenda in the NAFTA should be, you know what, petitioners need to demonstrate what that unfair, the source of the unfair advantage is. I'm not holding my breath. In fact, I came here 17 years ago to start the project on anti-dumping reform. And we estimated that I would be here for two years. <laughs> so uh, this is a, a long-term sort of battle. But what's egregious about this case um, is that it's so unusual in that there were no sales. All right, so what's happened is that Bombardier uh, is in the process of making sales, uh, make, uh, building these C-series aircraft. Delta, which is having a hard time maintaining its profits because it has to buy, it has a big fleet of very large aircraft. So it flies short routes, the, the, the routes that are less traveled with, with overcapacity, with planes with empty seats. 
and that's a no-no in, in that industry. Okay, the, the, it's the cost per head. You know, the more ticket buyers you have, the lower the unit cost. So they've won Boeing to make these planes. Boeing did make smaller planes, and they got out of it in 2006. They stopped making these planes entirely. So Bombardier uh, stepped into the breach and offered to make these planes, and, and so they, they, they signed a purchase agreement uh, with Delta uh, to deliver 75 planes over, I think, five or six years. None has been delivered yet. So what's unusual here is that the Commerce Department is treating this purchase agreement date as the date of sale. But there have been no sales. And in this case, they're talking about a threat of material injury, which is the easiest standard to meet. They're not saying we are materially injured. We are threatened with material injury if, in fact, Bombardier sells these planes to, to, uh, to Delta going forward. And so I think uh, the, the, the evidentiary threshold is, is, is low. Um, the, 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 the sh commerce has a long history of, using, of rejecting purchase date as the date of sale. But to magnify the problem here, um, in, in anti-dumping investigations, the Commerce Department collects data on your cost of production. And so they want to make sure that your selling prices are above your cost of production. Uh, if not, uh, then the sales are, are dismissed. They're not considered, and they build up what's called normal value using, using cost. Well, here's 75 planes, a handful of which have been made. And so the Commerce Department was asking Bombardier to put on the record its costs. Well, this is a, uh, uh, one of these industries in which there's a huge learning curve effect. Um, the 75th unit, the 75th plane it makes, is going to be much less expensive on a per unit basis than the first. And they've made like five or six of them so far. So the costs are enormous. They're much higher than the, the price. Uh, so Bombardier didn't want to put the, the data on the record. They said, you know, you're asking us to do something that doesn't make any sense. And in fact, Boeing, the way it does, uh, does its accounting, it, does it, it, it averages its, its costs over the life of, of, the, of, the, of the plane series. So Boeing knows if they didn't do it that way and they, they did, oh, well, we, you know, that we produced the first 10 this year and the next 10 this year, that their, their financial statements every year would show huge losses. So it's, uh, the Commerce Department was compelling Bombardier to put on the record these costs, which would have led to very high dumping margins. Bombardier didn't put them on, on the record. And as a result, they got what's called adverse facts available. Uh, so the Commerce Department says, well, you're not being cooperative, so we're going to use, we're going to pick a number that, that uh, the, best, the, the best information available. And that's what the number that the petitioners alleged. They said they're dumping at 80% or 79.8%, whatever the number was. It used to be the case until a couple of years ago, and this is also to address the, the, the Trump, why this is not a Trump thing. A couple of years ago, the law changed, the anti-dumping law, um, so that you didn't need to corroborate your best, uh, your adverse facts available numbers. Uh, it's also, it all, the law also, this was the same week that we passed the Trade Promotion Authority legislation. Uh, the Custom, Customs Enforcement Act, I think it's what it was called. Um, there's also a lower injury uh, threshold, basically. You can't say that an, that an industry is not injured if it's profitable. So there's been, a weak there's been a weakening of the law, and as a result, there's been almost a record number of cases brought this year. Now, some people say, well, that's because of Trump. You know, that's, that's a possibility that industries think that they have a sympathetic ear. 
uh, in the White House, and therefore there might be some instruction to, for, to the Commerce Department. But there are other factors, and I really don't think we should dwell on that. We should think about how easy it is to, to abuse these laws. Most, in most cases, uh, it's not about unfair trade anymore. It is about uh, companies seeking commercial advantages over one another. In many cases, it's U.S. companies going after other U.S. companies. My, my, most, my favorite example is the bedroom furniture case from the early 2000s. In this case, you had the North Carolina industry uh, making its furniture in the Philippines and Indonesia, supplementing its domestic production with uh, production in Asian countries, going after the Virginia industry, which had, had the same model but was uh, outsourcing some of the production to China. And their petition, they're like, you know, we're going to restore uh, jobs in, in the U.S. furniture industry. We're going to go after unfair traders. And uh, so they've succeeded in shutting down or you know, raising the price of imports of bedroom furniture from China, but not because they were going to bring jobs back here, but so that they could have a clear path uh, importing from the Philippines and, and other places. So, um, so this gets to, let me, let me get to chapter 19. One of the side effects here of the, of the Bombardier dispute, as I, see, I hear a lot of Canadians say, well, the Americans are telling us that we should get rid of Chapter 19. No way. Look, this is proof that we need to keep Chapter 19. Well, Chapter 19 is just an alternative dispute settlement procedure. It, it, it enables the NAFTA countries to use a NAFTA panel instead of the courts to adjudicate issues arising from agency decisions. I've long thought it's unconstitutional. Uh, it's been challenged a couple times, but thrown out on standing. But, but the Canadians seem to think they need this and that the Bombardier uh, debacle is further evidence of that. But the problem is not with the courts. The problem is with the Commerce Department. And I've been looking doing research, and the Court of International Trade gives quite a fair shake to foreign entities. Uh, it's, it does a pretty good job of disciplining the Commerce Department. 46% uh, of the time, 46% of the issues that are briefed uh, on Commerce Department issues, the, the CIT remands to them. 47.4% of the time, it's when the foreigners are the complainants. 43% of the time when it's the domestic industry. So there's a slightly higher success rate for foreigners at the CIT. But if the Canadians are insistent on, on 19, it's either because they don't know those stats or they feel they get better results uh, in, the, in the NAFTA panels. And if that's the case, if it's statistically significant that they get better results there, that's going to upset a lot of people who are worried about the legality and the constitutionality because they're supposed to be using the same standard of review. Um, so one last point, and I'm, I'm out of time, but this gets just a touch on, on, on lumber. I also say to the Canadians, you you've put too much faith in this, the Chapter 19 panels. The Commerce Department and the USITC are much more likely to respond in a timely way to the Court of International Trade, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, than they will to the NAFTA panels. They'll drag their feet. They realize they have a little bit of coverage. They can drape themselves in the flag, say, hey, there's a sovereignty issue here. This panel of faceless bureaucrats is telling us you know, what to do. That's what happened in lumber. So the most important dispute in uh, US-Canadian history, in 2005, there were three remand instructions from uh, the panels to the ITC and to the Commerce Department, essentially telling them, get rid of these anti-dumping orders. There's no evidence for this. You've, you've, you've gone too far. 
During that time, there was a negotiation going on, and this gets intermingled with a couple of other U.S. transgressions in trade law, something called the Byrd Amendment. Uh, at, back in 2000, we had this law where uh, duties collected by customs would be uh, channeled to the petitioners. Instead of staying in the general treasury, they'd go to the petitioners. This is kind of an ambulance-chasing scheme, but $5 billion had been collected on lumber. Part of the agreement, which ended up with the export taxes and, and the, the, the restrictions, uh, the lumber agreement, uh, restored, gave $4 billion back to the importers. The U.S. kept a billion uh, uh, for forestry service and, and to give to the U.S. industry. Anyway, that is the experience with, I mean, a pretty bad experience with Chapter 19. So, I think the Canadians need to give some thought as to whether or not they think that's the best path to go. I have the feeling, um, maybe others here know better than I, uh, that uh, it's something that be, they'd be willing to negotiate away, and I would encourage it. So uh, I'll stop there, and uh, thanks for your attention. I believe we have about 15 minutes left. Um, I'd like to take a few minutes in case some of the panelists like to react to each other's comments or ask any questions of each other. Sure. Okay, go for it. Chris. I, I really I want to comment on all the cases. So uh, just one quick comment on Derry and then one quick comment on Bombardier to just sort of back up uh, what they've said, but maybe give it a more Canadian political context. We haven't talked a lot about New Zealand. But New Zealand is one of the big dairy exporters around the world. And when the Trans-Pacific Partnership talks were uh, running and the Obama administration proposed that Canada join them, New Zealand put their foot down and they were chairing the talks to say, Canada cannot come in if it doesn't end supply management. That is their original sin and they've got to stop. Now, dairy is really important as our sheep um, contrary to popular belief, the New Zealanders do not mostly export hobbits. Um, so they were very concerned on this particular file. And Stephen Harper, who was prime minister with a strong base in Western Canada, did the easy thing first as his gesture of good faith, which was getting rid of the Canadian Wheat Board, which was supply management for wheat. And his own constituency backed it, and he was able to do that. That got him into the talks, and during the talks, he negotiated an agreement that would get rid of dairy supply management. To do that, he had two important things. One, very few seats in Quebec, only about eight at the time. So he didn't, his government did not rely on Quebec that much. He could afford to annoy the Quebec dairy farmers. And he didn't just annoy them, he actually paid them off. He offered them a cash value for their supply management you know, privilege so that they would get a a regular check from the government instead of selling the milk, and then they could be held harmless, and that would allow them to end the program, but not necessarily on the backs of these farmers. That was a price negotiated. There was some grumbling, but people accepted it. That was important because now, fast forward, Justin Trudeau's government is much more dependent on seats in Quebec. They get almost, well, they have 41 seats. So they have 79 seats from Ontario, but Quebec is their number two block. That's where the prime minister's from. That's where his seat is. And the Quebec dairy farmers, I think quite reasonably, have said, if you want to trade this away in NAFTA, where's our check? Because that's what the other guy promised. Now, Justin Trudeau is in deficit. He does not have a lot of cash. He could find it if he wants to, but there's no way the dairy industry is going to embrace this liberalization unless they get paid. And that's the dilemma that he finds himself in. And I think that makes it harder for him to concede easily unless he can say someplace in NAFTA 2.0, I got something so I can defend this, where it was easier for Harper. 
the second comment really is on Bombardier. And I agree with what, what Dan said. Obviously, he's brilliant. That's but, what people say when they're about to disagree. Well, but I just want to add a, a little bit of nuance, and that, uh, that goes to Bombardier itself. The company has seen better days. It is an archetypical Quebec manufacturer. You may know them for snowmobiles or annoying ski that wreck every lake in America <laughs> if they're allowed to with noisy uh, uh, engines. Um, the C-Series was a real gamble for them. Uh, they had made small planes. You've probably flown on the dashes or the Canadian regional jet CRGs. Um, they bought Lear, the jet maker in Kansas. They bought Short Brothers, which was in, uh, in Northern Ireland, hence the interest of the British in this case. But they weren't doing very well, and they bet the company on the C-Series to really be their route to revival. And they were doing so badly without sales, as Dan said, that the Quebec government invested a billion dollars in the C-Series program. And then Ottawa gave them a $360 million repayable, under generous terms, loan. And I think this has made the case harder because for a very simplistic analysis, you say, well, you're selling at these low, low prices, and you couldn't do that if you hadn't had this cash infusion from two governments, which looks, looks bad. It looks like the smoking gun. The second issue there that is complicated is it, picking on Justin Trudeau again. The Trudeau government inherited a commitment to buy from Lockheed Martin the F-35. And... Canada's procurement is always complicated. These planes are expensive. Same deal as with commercial jets. They're expensive on the first number. And so Trudeau campaign saying, I'm not so keen on this. I'm going to suspend the sale, even if I have to face penalties. And I'm going to revisit the whole procurement. So that already had Lockheed kind of annoyed. And then Trudeau came up with this peace offering. He suggested, well, you know, we could buy some Super Hornets to replace our CF-18s. And Boeing makes those. Great way to kind of twist the knife on Lockheed Martin, and he kind of offers some bait to Boeing. But we can't buy planes from Boeing if they're suing Bombardier. So once this becomes an anti-dumping case, Canada says, oh, no, no more Super Hornets. Well, so they're still without a plane, which is not very good, but also they muddied the waters. They made it look like this is a deal and gave Boeing every incentive to, to continue to say, well, maybe you don't want to buy 80 Super Hornets, maybe you want to buy 200. Ha, how do you like that? And what makes this... One more level of complicated is that Boeing's motivation, as they've said publicly, really has to do with their fear or their memory that when Airbus was a pipsqueak uh, manufacturer in Europe that they never figured would amount to anything, they didn't challenge them on the government support that those, that company had when they were building their planes. And never thought that they would be as big a competitor for U.S. airlines and in the U.S. market that they had become. And they regret it. And they're fighting the last war. And this time they're not going to let a little upstart, you know, get a little bit of market share and then potentially eat up a market that they don't think is worth very much because they don't sell a plane in this category. And so that motivates them to start the dispute, which is, uh, which is one thing. And then when this all blows up and the Commerce Department comes out with all of these uh, penalties, Bombardier announces that it's sold 50% of the value of the C-Series to Airbus. So if... You wanted to make Boeing mad. There was no better way to do it. And so I think this has now become a collision course of death. And it has as much to do with the politics as it does the economics. Yeah, if I could just add on the, um, on the political dimension on dairy. Um, the Quebec angle is interesting um, because um, there is more support for labor there. 
Uh, interestingly, uh, during the industry negotiations in Canada um, that led to Class 7, um, there were significant differences between Quebec and Ontario, and those are the two main dairy-producing provinces. Um, Ontario um, championed uh, Class 7, in fact, had a uh, uh, a provincial class six before class seven, which had the same effect. Quebec um, actually tabled a proposal that um, would have changed the method by which production quotas were allocated, basing um, the uh, the quoted determinations on um, not butterfat consumption, but on protein consumption. Uh, this would have the effect of balancing protein, so you eliminate the surplus. At the same time, you would create a shortage of butter, uh, which you could make up uh, through imports, but you would preserve the supply management system. And Quebec farmers were more interested in preserving the system uh, as opposed to the Ontario farmers who wanted to expand their production. So, long story short, a potential solution could lie in uh, that sort of rejiggering uh, of how you um, determine um, uh, production quotas um, and yet still save supply management. Great. Um, let's use the remainder of our time to turn to questions from the audience. Uh, a couple rules, please wait for the microphone to arrive before asking your question. Also, please state your name and affiliation if you have one. And also, if you'd like to direct your question to a particular member of the panel, please indicate that. So, dead center. I'm Justin Margolis, Government of Quebec. So a uh, question first about the politics of dairy. Um, another part that's not mentioned is the dairy politics in the U.S. The two biggest producers being Wisconsin and New York. Those are the states of Chuck Schumer and um, uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. Yeah. So there's politics on both sides. And then Maxime Bernier, who was the conservative candidate placed to replace Stephen Harper, opposed dairy management and couldn't even win his own riding in his own congressional district in the uh, leadership. So maybe comments on the cross-border uh, political relationship with dairy. And the second question is on softwood lumber. Uh, there have been three major hurricanes that have just hit the United States, including parts, most parts that voted for the president. Homes that will need to be rebuilt. The National Association of Home Builders thinks it could amount to up to a $3,000 tax on the average new American home. So comments on how the storm could play into that. Thank you. Great questions. Yeah. Well, I think on the um, uh, on the dairy politics, you you've certainly pointed to the uh, to the right uh, areas. Uh, Schumer and Ryan um, having um, the the ultra filter milk plants, which uh, were supplying uh, the Canadian cheese manufacturers prior to the advent of Class Seven. Um, and basically, the faucet for that ultra-filtered milk did get turned off. Now, in terms of overall U.S. production of milk, it was not terribly much. But as um, um, a political um, uh, issue, 
Um, it was obviously heightened by, uh, by Schumer and Ryan um, and the president himself when he became aware of it. It just, I mean, it, it, it was the perfect storm to um, bring the issue um, to national attention. Um, and um, certainly um, it has created um, a fair amount of impetus um, within the U.S., both in the government and the industry, um, to, uh, to push this issue pre you know, pretty hard. You know, I don't really know whether there are exceptions that can be made for short supply under ADCBD orders. I, I should know that. Uh, what, are the du what are the duties right now uh, or, um, for, for software? It's between 19 and 25. There's five companies that are targeted with a specific percentage, and the rest is yeah. in, in 19 and 25. That's, that's the dumping and the, 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 the subsidy is like release. I mean, are, have domestic lumber prices gone up as a result of this? I mean, they're, expected. they're expected to, yeah. Uh, the, the duties are being, on the provisional basis, so sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. So the Atlantic province is exempted, except for PEI, uh, PEI, Newfoundland, and Nova Scotia accepted. On the sub, sub, the CBDs? Yes. They're, they're subject to dumping. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess if, if the U.S. price goes up high enough, then maybe the somebody will want to import it with, and pay the higher duties. Uh, I, I don't know what can be done to get around it. I mean, there's so much uncertainty also that's injected in these cases. When the U.S. system, uh, you, you don't have your final duty when you import something. It's under anti-dumping. You have a provisional duty. It's a duty based on last year's experience. And so if I'm an importer and the rate is 10%, I post 10% now, but the actual rate at which I'm liquidated is the rate based on what sales are this year. So they have to recalculate that later. So I post 10% and then all of a sudden they recalculate the dumping duties and it's 20. I'm on the hook for the extra 10%. So the U.S. law is different than other countries in, in, in that, that sense. And it, uh, it's, it's designed to inject uncertainty into the system, drive wedges between uh, U.S. buyers and foreign producers, but I, I don't know how to answer your question whether there's anything that can be done. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Well, I, let me just say this. In, I, I always pick on Canadian politics because I find them interesting, but I, I would never exonerate Americans from having political uh, reasons of their own to do the things they do. We're, we're, we're definitely, I, I'm part of the pot calling the kettle black on that, and um, so no exoneration there. The other thing I would say, which is interesting about the softwood duties, was that New Brunswick was kind of thrown in with Quebec and Ontario and Alberta and British Columbia. New Brunswick went a long way to a more market-based auction system like New Nova Scotia uh, did, like Newfoundland did, and fully expected to be in the exempted group as a result. But politically, I think, commerce decided that keeping them in the mix and on the hook helped to get a, a voice at the table that would lead to, to a peace, or at least peace in American terms. So I think that there's a lot of caginess on the part of commerce and the way that they've structured this. The other thing I would say that's interesting about the way software lumber has evolved is that when we first started having these disputes, we had Canadian companies versus American companies competing, I guess, to sell to American buyers. What's happened, particularly with Weyerhaeuser buying Macmillan Bloedel and, and other uh, consolidation in the industry, is they're increasingly multinational companies that operate on both sides of the border and both 
even if both of our systems are screwy, profit off of that screwiness. And I think that that's, that's a new dynamic. But what's happened is US trade policy is so vulnerable to a small interest, doesn't have to be the majority, pushing the buttons, filing for relief, and getting the machinery to move. That just like we had with country of origin labeling on pork and beef a few years ago, we have a splinter of the softwood industry that has pushed these buttons. And there are a lot of big US lumber companies that don't want this fight and would agree with you that we should be selling the lumber as cheap as possible, help rebuild homes, or whatever argument it is. And in that dynamic, if there's a road to solving this, it's the big U.S. integrated lumber companies on both sides of the border that I think will make that case most effectively to this Commerce Department. Any other questions in the back? <laughs> sure. Uh, Byron Cowell and Capital Alpha Partners. Um, Dan or Chris, can we just talk a little more about the Boeing Bombardier case? Because it's been a long-running battle about launch aid and Airbus and, uh, you know, the contingent liabilities that some of the European governments take on. So how do you think this thing is going to get resolved? Or is there any new precedent you see in the Bombardier uh, investment in, that was taken? Or, or is this just kind of part of the same long debate and dispute that's been playing out in the commercial aerospace industry? Look, I mean, one of the rationales for protectionism, you know, put, putting border barriers up, is to induce investment in the United States. And so, success. Uh, that, that's happened. So, I don't know that there needs to necessarily be a solution. I mean, Boeing will probably go after the supply chain that, that is uh, going to uh, evolve uh, in one way or another. They might not have standing going after parts that they're, that they're really bringing in parts as opposed to, you know, wings and fuselages. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it could be resolved already. Mm -hmm. I, I, what I would say is what's interesting is um, if you had asked me a year ago, because we saw the dispute brewing, I would probably have guessed that Boeing would end up buying Bombardier's aircraft division, marketing the plane themselves. They've got a superior marketing you know, catalog, et cetera. Um, and in the end, Airbus has got 50%. And, Airbus has indicated that they like the plane, but they've got other planes, and this might or might not be their, their big thing going forward. And I could see Bombardier, in effect, leaving the aircraft segment just because it, 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 it's a game where you get governments on your side, and you better have big governments on your side, and they don't have it. Uh, it would be tragic. I mean, they, they came out of a long fight with Embraer, which had Brazilian subsidies, and they, they've tried to show you can make it work as a small guy, and I, I worry that they're going to lose it. What's ironic, or what's even worse for them, um, is they're having problems on rail cars. Uh, there are a lot of subway systems in North America that are having trouble because they're not getting delivery. And we saw GE this morning talking about getting out of the rail car business. I, depending on how this shakes out, they might even lose that market as well. And so the future of Bombardier, and this will be a real pain for Quebec uh, to lose such a, I don't want to say national champion, but such a, a, a brand that is identified as theirs. Um, I think they'll have Cirque du Soleil, and that, that might be the only thing. No, just kidding. Uh, no, Kirchies. Kirchies, yes. But it would, it would be a big, it'd be a big loss. And um, but maybe in the shakeout, all that you know, Boeing and Airbus go toe to toe. Bombardier becomes you know small fry, and they get dropped out, and they're not as big a, a player. You could see the same thing on rail. Maybe with GE getting out, they can pick up more business. Maybe buy some of GE's business if they're getting out and have more capacity. I, so you could see a happy ending. Uh, but I think those are the kind of options that Bombardier is facing. And one other dynamic here worth mentioning is it's not just Boeing Bombardier. It's also Boeing Delta. They've been having disputes for a long, very long time. And it's emblematic of 
the, the central one of the central problems of the, the anti-dumping law, and that is upstream industries, in this case the aircraft manufacturers, can seek protection, and their customers, their downstream customers, don't have standing. They're, well, the, the ITC does not have to consider the impact of duties on the downstream industries. So Delta's helpless in this case, as are all the other aircraft pr producers. We've seen this in steel. We've seen it in other industries. We, you know, we've been pushing. One of the reforms we're pushing for is to have uh, 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 a public interest provision and to have change of the, the law so that they can't wreak havoc on, on on all these industries downstream. It's a big. It's, it, it is ridiculous that we submit to this. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Thus, bring us to the conclusion of this discussion. A couple of notes. I hope that you'll join all of us in the reception on the first floor. Also, bathrooms can be found around the corner and at the top of the stairs to your left. Uh, please join me in thanking today's panelists.